1 Samuel 19, David's exile begins. It's a poem by Alfred Tennyson called The Charge of the Light Brigade, perhaps one that uh, some of you are familiar with. The first two stanzas say this, Half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death, Rode the six hundred, forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said, into the valley of death, rode the six hundred. Forward the light brigade. Was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldiers knew someone had blundered. Theirs was not to make reply, theirs was not to reason why, theirs was but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the six hundred. Alfred Tennyson here describes what is known as the Charge of the Light Brigade, tells us of a miscommunication sent to a group of 600 men against the wrong enemy hill, causing an insufferable and incredible loss for that hill's capture. It was during the Crimean War that this took place. And in that second stanza, Tennyson seeks to elaborate upon the mindset of the soldiers that were in this charge of the light brigade with this statement, theirs was not to make reply, theirs was not to reason why, theirs was but to do and die. The idea being that they, uh, though perhaps when they said, you're going to take that hill, um, said, oh, is this really a good idea? Uh, it was not their position in the military to question the orders that they'd been given. It was not their position in that military to reason out whether or not it was a good idea. It was theirs to do what they were told. And in that case, to, as Tennyson says, do and die. As a believer, we don't always know what God is doing in our lives. And in much the same way as a soldier who would trust the orders of his commander implicitly, we too are asked by God to trust His plan implicitly. Now, there's a difference, of course, between Tennyson's poem and, and the Christian life. In, the, in Tennyson's poem, it says, theirs was not to reason or to question, theirs was simply to do and thus to die. Uh, theirs was simply to follow a order, silly order, a wrong order based upon a miscommunication to their doom. Now, ours is not that, right? As a believer... Ours is certainly not to question why. Ours is not to reason or to make reply. But much rather in God's economy, we know beyond a doubt that following God's orders, even when they don't make sense to us, do not lead to death. They lead to life and life more abundantly. And today we're going to see in the life of David, things take a turn for the worse. David is going to be coming into a place in his life and ministry where things aren't going to make sense to him. And we're going to see just the beginning of that today. But we're also going to see a man who, in the midst of all of the possible problems, and in the midst of all of the reasons why what was going on didn't really make sense, he still maintained his loyalty to God. What was God doing? He didn't know, but... He was going to do what, God, what he did know God wanted him to do and leave the rest to him. We're going to be excessively ambitious today and seek to get through two chapters of Scripture. Now, what that means is that I'm not going to be reading every verse. 
Uh, those of you that were here for the Ezekiel series is familiar with how I preach these. I hit the highlights and I'll, I'll explain what's going on in the text, but I won't be able to read it all to you. If you are interested in reading it all, I would encourage you to do so. I would encourage you perhaps this afternoon. If you want a Bible, perhaps you don't have one today because you're used to looking at the screen and that's one of the unfortunate side effects of putting the Bible up on the screen. I do uh, encourage you to have a Bible with you, but if you don't and you would like one so that you can read that which I'm not specifically giving you, there are some on the back table. You can feel free to grab a Bible at any point during the service and we will get through these two chapters and then make application. So as we step into chapter 19 of 1 Samuel, we find Jonathan come face to face with the emotional state of his father. Verse 1 says this, And Saul spake to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. Saul has now come out and told his servants as well as his son that they need to kill David. The reality of David's plight obviously and noticeably disturbs Jonathan who loves David very much. In fact, loves him as a brother as we have seen in the past. Jonathan informs David of Saul's intentions thus, something which uh, obviously to some degree David already knew. David already knew that Saul didn't, uh, he, he had a problem with him, right? Um, it was confirmed through a javelin trying to pin him to a wall, perhaps. Uh, it was confirmed through several other instances, but, but now it's confirmed by the lips of his, his best friend, Jonathan. Yes, my father has said he wants you to die. He's instructed his servants. He's instructed me if we get an opportunity to kill you. And so David now hears uh, of Saul's intentions in the most legitimate of ways. And, and Jonathan suggests that David avoid Saul for the time being, uh, probably a good idea, but until such time as Jonathan can dig a little bit deeper into what his father truly intended and the degree of hatred that Saul truly has for David. After all, perhaps Saul was just having a bad day when he told his servants, hey, if you find David, kill him. Maybe he really didn't completely mean what he said. Maybe he hadn't thought through it entirely. I mean, Dad had been getting a little emotionally flaky lately. Dad was under a lot of stress. Dad was getting a little paranoid in his old age. So maybe Dad, in Jonathan's mind, right? Dad didn't really mean everything that he said here. So he says, David, you just avoid Saul for a little while and I'm going to get to the bottom of this and we'll just figure this out together. And so Jonathan reassures David, saying he'll talk to his father, commune with him, speak well with him. And Jonathan does exactly that excuse me, in verses 4 and 5, which tell us this. And Jonathan spake good of David unto Saul his father and said unto him, Let not the king sin against his servant against David because he hath not sinned against thee. And because his works have been thee were very good. For he did put his life in his hand and slew the Philistine and the Lord wrought a great salvation for all Israel. Thou sawest it and didst rejoice. Wherefore then, Wilt thou sin against innocent blood and slay David without a cause? So Jonathan's got a good point here. Uh, David doesn't hate you, Saul. David doesn't, he's, he's not seeking your, your um, evil. He's not seeking your demise. After all, he put his life into his own hands when he went and he fought the Philistine Goliath. And, and then he has not seek to usurp your glory, to usurp your authority. He, he's, he has served you well. Even you rejoiced on that day, Dad. Very strong case for the unreasonable nature of Saul's hatred for David. And Saul is very sensitive to Jonathan's intercession here on David's behalf. 
We find in verse 6 that Saul listens to the voice of his son and he says, yes, I will not kill David. So Jonathan is very happy and he joyfully calls David back and he says, my father has said he won't kill you. He's not going to kill you. And there's a reunion of sorts between Saul and David. And the scriptures tell us that things sort of go back to the way they were before. Before Saul was getting very um, paranoid about David and Saul loved David and when, when David was Saul's armor bearer and when things were going well, things kind of go back to that. There's that good relationship with, again. Perhaps you've had something like that happen before where there's been tension between you and someone you loved and, and uh, when things finally got out in the air and finally got in the open, uh, things went back to the way they were prior. And it's been wonderful. There's that good relationship again and it's like nothing had ever happened to begin with doesn't always happen, but that was kind of what happened here between David and Saul. But this would not last very long. And again, not by the fault of David's, Saul would soon again turn his heart and indeed his actions against David again. And this time we find in verse 8 that there was war, once again war between Israel and between the Philistines, and David was sent out to fight this war. He was the captain of thousands and so he went out and he showed himself again very valiant in this war. The Lord was with him. He destroyed the enemies of Israel. Verse 8 says, There was war again and David went out and fought with the Philistines and slew them with a great slaughter fled from him. And following this battle, a battle uh, in which, interestingly enough, we do not find the presence of Saul. Saul, it would seem, did not go and fight this battle with his army. David is, is found again. We, we clip over to David playing his harp for Saul. The evil spirit of the Lord had come upon Saul again and David is called to play his harp in the court of the king and um, to help with the evil spirit. Now recall in chapter 18, verse 11, we read the first occurrence of Saul's murderous javelin throw, right? That was the first occurrence where David was playing his harp like as before, but now Saul uh, feels a little bit differently toward David than he had uh, when he didn't know who David was, and so he tries to kill David. And the text told us in verse 11 that, that Saul had tried to kill David two times. Now, when we remember that the Hebrew text is nowhere near as loyal to chronology as perhaps the English language and even the Greek language, we understand that, that these sort of summary verses can happen, where they can summarize this happened two times, when in fact those two times were separated by some length of time. And it's quite possible that the second javelin throw, the first one recorded in 1 Samuel 18, that the second javelin throw that 1 Samuel 18 verse 11 speaks of is actually found here in chapter 19 verse 11, where we see a second attempt on David's life. So the text tells us um, that Saul missed David, that David fled and escaped that night, and that David now realizes and for sure knows that Saul is still trying to kill him. And the scriptures tell us that he flees back to his house. We don't know where his house was. Perhaps it was in Bethlehem where his family lived. Probably not. It may have been uh, more in Jerusalem, or not, not in Jerusalem, in Gibeah, where Saul was to be close to Saul and meet his needs. But wherever it was, he flees back to his house. And we find the escaping part of this in verse 11. Saul also sent messengers unto David's house to watch him and to slay him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If thou wilt 
excuse me, if thou save not thy life tonight, tomorrow thou wilt be slain. David runs to his house and it's learned that Saul has brought men, sent men to the house and in the morning when David comes out, grab him, arrest him, bring him to me, we're going to kill him. Michael, David's wife and Saul's daughter, hears about this and says, look David, if you don't escape tonight, you're not going to escape. If you don't get out of here now, you're not going to have the chance. So Michael lets David down from presumably one of the back windows where there wasn't a door so Saul's men wouldn't even be necessarily thinking about watching and David escapes from Saul. Michael then pulls one of the oldest tricks in the book. Verses 13 and 14 tell us this, And Michael took an image and laid it in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster and covered it with a cloth. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said he is sick. Michael puts a lump in the bed, makes it look semi-human, covers it with a blanket and tells the would-be assassins when they come a-calling that David is sick. They look at the lump in the bed. They say, oh, David's sick. They turn around and they go back to Saul. They go back to Saul and say, well, David never came out of the house. He was sick. And um, (laughs) so I guess I can't kill him, right? We can't take him. He's sick. Hired muscle has never really been very clever, right? Even back in that day, the hired muscle wasn't really thinking straight. Well, you know, what, we can't kill him when he's sick? Let's go, go get him, Saul says. Well, it doesn't matter if he's sick. Drag him out of bed and get him here. So they go and they, they go to pull him out of bed. And of course, they pull back the sheet and you hear the dun-dun-dun because he's not there. There's the goat's head, there's the, ima- the goat's hair, the image, but no David. And they, aha, yeah, Michael tricked us. And David's got a nice head start now. So instead of bringing David, they bring Michael. And they bring Michael to her father. And Saul says to her in verse 17, Why hast thou deceived me so, and sent away mine enemy, that he is escaped? And Michael answered and said, He said unto me, Let me go. Why should I kill thee? So Saul confronts Michael here. Why did you deceive me? Why did you help my enemy escape? Uh, Saul should have known. I mean, this is David's wife. Michael truly loved David. And Saul was being absolutely unreasonable. So, so it, it's really not too surprising that she sought to save her husband from a murderous psychopath. But instead she lies. And she says that David threatened to kill her if she did not let him escape. Now a lie is never right in God's eyes. She, we can understand why she did it because her father is unstable. And if she had said, yeah, I helped your enemy escape, he might have very well tried to kill her. So she lied and she was spared death as she convinced him that David had threatened her own life in order to escape. So David flees and the text tells us that he flees to Samuel who lives in Ramah. Now Samuel had not seen Saul recall. The scriptures told us several chapters ago that Samuel would never see Saul again after Saul came back from the Amalekites with King Agag and he had not killed King Agag and Saul said, you have now been rejected as king and I've rejected you, God's rejected you and then he goes away and the scriptures tell us that Saul never sees Samuel again as um, king. But David flees to Samuel and as he does so, he tells Samuel everything that has 
gone on. And Samuel seeks to help David. And the scriptures say that the two went together, in verse 18, to Nioth. The word Nioth is probably a designation for a dwelling place within Ramah. And we'll see this a little bit later in the text, that the scriptures call it Nioth in Ramah. And so Ramah would be the, the city proper. Nioth would be a place within the city. And likely it was the place where the prophets stayed. Samuel is attributed with being the man who began the school of the prophets a place where he would train up men who desired to minister, to devote their lives to ministering unto the Lord, uh, even though they were not Levites. And so Nioth was probably the name of their college, as it were. This school of the prophets, where they would learn, where they would grow, where they would seek to um, perfect the, their ability to worship the Lord in song and in word. So he brings David there, and he has him stay with the, the prophets at the school of the prophets. Well, Saul soon finds out where David went. Saul's got his spies. He's got his network. And he finds out that, that David fled to Samuel. And he brazenly sends men to take David. He, he'll, he'll take David from his home in, in the eyes of his wife. He will take David from Nioth right there in the face of Samuel. And the scriptures tell us that as these this high, these hired men take, that were coming to take David, as they got toward Nioth and Ramah, that Samuel was there and the prophets were there and the prophets were prophesying. Likely in this case, they were singing. And they were, they were worshiping the Lord and the scriptures tell us that as they got nearer to Samuel, the Spirit of the Lord came upon them and they began to prophesy as well. And as we consider probably what's happening here, as they get closer to Samuel, the conviction of the Lord is upon them. They uh, feel compelled by the Spirit of God to praise the name of God. And as they align their hearts with God in prayer and in worship, they kind of lose the compulsion to unjustly destroy a man who has done nothing wrong. And so Saul recognizes that they started prophesying and, and they're not going to finish the task. So he sends another group. And that group goes, and as they get closer to Nioth, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon them, and they begin to prophesy. And so he sends another group, and the same thing happens with them. They begin to prophesy. So, so he's not really getting anywhere by sending all of these, these henchmen to go get David. He says, fine then, I'll just do it myself. So Saul comes to Ramah. And we find in verses 22 through 24 the account of him arriving. The scriptures tell us, Then went he also to Ramah and came to a great well that is in Seku. And he asked and said, where, is, where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they be at Nioth in Ramah. And he went thither to Nioth in Ramah. And, when the, Spirit of God was upon, and the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah. And the scriptures tell us he stripped off his clothes also and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and laid down naked all that day and all that night. Wherefore they say is Saul also among the prophets. So in a most bizarre set of circumstances, the scriptures tell us that Saul, having God to find Samuel and David, asks, inquires about where they are, goes to get them, and he began to prophesy as well, the same way that his servants did. But whereas it would appear that the prophets, as well as these servants, their prophecy would be temporal in nature. It would last for a little while and then it would 
uh, taper off as one would expect, that they were filled with the Spirit for a time as they were worshiping the Lord, and then it would cease. It would appear that um, things were a little bit different with Saul's experience. The Scriptures tell us that Saul stripped off his clothes and lay down naked the whole day and night. Now, we don't fully understand what, what uh, this means because Hebrew is by nature somewhat ambiguous. However, historically, we do have a little bit of insight into what's going on here. It would appear that it was very customary for those in the school of the prophets to strip off layers of garments as they were prophesying. The men would customarily take off their outer layers and end up with what we would now call shirtless. That they would end up from the torso up having no shirt on and having their outer garments off as they prophesied before the Lord. It is possible from the text that Saul stripped off all of his clothing, but it is not necessary from the text. It could be that he was just um, uh, shirtless, basically, as well. And there is some historical um, precedent to say that this would have been one of the customary demeanors in which the school of the prophets would prophesy. So we really don't know what's going on here. But the interesting element is that Saul lays this way all day and night, whereas typically the Spirit of God would come upon a man for a couple of hours as he would prophesy unto the Lord, and then he would move on with his day. Saul is in this disposition all day and into the night. And it would seem that um, likely that it, it was the hardness of Saul's heart, that whereas these henchmen, as they came and they began to prophesy, they would yield their heart over to the Lord and that the evil intended against David would be pacified. Saul's hardness caused him to really wrestle with the Spirit of God here. And so the Spirit of God is upon him unto prophecy, but he is being so hard that there's this contention between Saul and the Spirit of God that is causing this state, this ecstatic state in the Spirit to, to last and to continue as opposed to subsiding over a time. And this occurrence, the scripture tells us, reinvigorates a saying which we haven't seen in a long time. It was all the way back in 1 Samuel 10. I don't even know how long ago that was. All the way back in 1 Samuel 10 that that phrase began, is Saul among the prophets? And remember at the time we explained what that means. We explained it means that um, when something would happen, where a person was seen doing something that seemed very out of place for them, out of context for them, that someone would say, is Saul among the prophets? Because it was so strange the first time Saul prophesied to see him doing so. This would be, and I gave this example last time, like you're watching a basketball game and as they're announcing the players, you see, you know, so-and-so from so-and-so and he's, you know, 6'3", and so-and-so 6'1", and so-and-so 6'8", so-and-so 5'4". And you go, what? 5'4"? And if, if, if a bunch of Jews in that day had been watching and they saw the 5'4 man run out among these six, they'd say, is Saul also among the prophets? Right? They'd say, this is out of place. Something is not right here. And so it reinvigorated that phrase, is Saul also among the prophets? Uh, before Saul was timid and young, and then he began to prophesy something that's very outside of his character, and now he's angry and vengeful. And he began to prophesy. This is very out of character too. It's as if Saul cannot have the Spirit of God come upon him without him having to get out of character. And it's kind of a problem, right? So, so that's where this phrase comes from and that's why it finds its way here again. 
Now, if you are physically with us this morning and not listening online, you perhaps have been following on the screen, and as you've done so, you've seen the little titles, the summary titles. And the three summary titles for this chapter that I gave you were Jonathan chooses his side, Michael chooses her side, and Samuel chooses his side. Three different people, perhaps we might say the three most important people, the most influential people in Saul's life. His eldest son, his youngest daughter, and Samuel the prophet. And all three of these people have now sided with the man who he perceives to be threatening him, with the man who, who he perceives to hate him, and the man who he, without question, hates. Can you imagine how that would negatively contribute to Saul's state of mind here? That throughout the course of these events, his son Jonathan is pleading for the life of his enemy. His daughter Michael deceived him to spare the life of his enemy. And now as he seeks a third time to destroy his enemy, the prophet Samuel protects his enemy from him. You'd think at this point David would probably assume that there's something wrong with him, but he doesn't. Excuse me, Saul. Saul would assume that there's something wrong with him. That there must be something wrong that all of these people are, are abandoning me for my enemy. But he doesn't see that. This just drives him deeper and deeper into this resentment, into this anger, into this jealousy, into this wrath. It drives him deeper into this hatred for David. And things just keep getting worse for Saul. His world is literally crumbling around him. And it is quite literally driving him mad. We are watching a man spiral into insanity because of his anger and his jealousy and his refusal to submit himself to the will of the Lord. And this leads us into chapter 20 where we find David flees from Nioth. He probably takes the time where Saul is lying there naked on the ground. He probably takes that time to run. And he flees back to Jonathan, likely in Gibeah. When he arrives, he asks Jonathan this in verse 1 of chapter 20. What have I done? What is mine iniquity and what is my sin before thy father that he seeketh my life? What have I done wrong? And Jonathan is still not fully there. He's still not really convinced that his father means business here. After all, last time Saul decreed David needs to die, he just went and talked to him for a little bit and Saul felt better and things were better and, and there was a reunion here. So uh, Jonathan uh, is not fully convinced. And furthermore, he contends, well, I haven't heard anything this time. David, what are you saying? Father hasn't come to me and told me anything. I haven't heard any rumblings that, that, there's a death, that there's a death mark out on you. And David, at this point, is, is, he's getting to the point now where he is recognizing that nothing is going to persuade Saul otherwise. And he says in verse 3, Thy father certainly knoweth that I have found grace in thy sight. Well, Jonathan, see, here's the thing. After last time, where you talked dad out of killing me, your dad probably knows that you like me. Now, I like you. Which means he might get it in his head, I'm going to do this without Jonathan knowing. Not just because Jonathan might tip off David, but I don't want to hurt my son. I don't want him to upset my son. And this is going to upset my son. So why don't I just do it without my son knowing? 
and then I can, after the deed is done, then I can try to explain to him what, what, what the deal was. So he says, let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved, but truly as the Lord liveth, David says, and as thy soul liveth, there is but a step between me and death. David is living moment by moment here, looking behind his back at all times, wondering at what point one of, one of Saul's henchmen is going to find him and going to kill him. So he asks Jonathan to do something for him because he wants to validate here that Saul really intends to kill him. And he wants Jonathan to see Saul's intentions. So he says, Jonathan, would you do this for me? And we find this in verses 4 through 8. He tells Jonathan that he is going to fail to appear. David is going to fail to appear for dinner for three nights during the time of the new moon. A new moon is the first phase of a moon's regular lunar cycle. A moon's lunar cycle is typically 29 days. And the first phase of a moon's lunar cycle is what is called a new moon. It's where the moon goes between the sun and the earth. And so there is either no light. You can just perhaps see a little bit of a ring. It's when the moon is dark. Or there's just the slightest little bit of a sliver. And that is a new moon. And the Jewish calendar was based upon not a solar cycle, as the Gregorian calendar that we have today is, but on a lunar cycle. The Jewish calendar followed the lunar cycle. And so because of that, the new moon would always coincide with the first of the month. And Jews being who they were, that was something to celebrate. I mean, we might as well have a feast, right? It's the, it's the new moon. It's the beginning of the month. Let's, let's eat. And so they had kind of mini feasts. It was an important time of the month where you would have a, a little bit of a mini feast. And it would seem that because of this minor Jewish holiday, a Jewish holiday that is typically called Rosh Kodesh today, um, David would be invited with his family to dine with Saul. And this would be a special occasion where David would dine with the king. David was, in fact, the son-in-law to the king, and this would be a great honor and perhaps probably the only time within the month where David would have the opportunity to do so. So you don't say no to this. And as would be typical, David would come for this three days and he would eat in the evenings with the king. Saul would definitely take notice if David did not show up to one of these. It would be a slight to Saul. It would be rude. It would be inappropriate. David would show up. And the plan continues. David's going to be gone for these three nights. And David says, if Saul asks where I'm at, Tell him that I went back to Bethlehem because my family has a yearly feast that I wanted to be a part of. Give my condolences, say I'm sorry I couldn't show up, but I can't be there. And David says this will be the test. If when your father hears why I was gone, he says that's fine, no problem, he had a feast to go to, it's not even a minor slight to his pride, then great. I will know that Saul doesn't actually hate me, he's just been grumpy. But if he gets angry at that, if he gets angry unreasonably, then you will know, Jonathan, and I will know that Saul wants to kill me, and I've got to go. And then take notice of what David says to Jonathan in verse 8. Therefore thou shalt deal kindly with thy servant, for thou hast brought thy servant into a covenant of the Lord with thee, notwithstanding, if there be in me iniquity, slay me thyself, for why shouldst thou bring me to thy father? David says, I know that you will do right by me because we, you've sworn a covenant to me. Remember that from last time? He took off his armor and gave it to David. He took off his weapons and gave them to David. Uh, very symbolically important. He says, I know that there's this covenant between us. I know you'll do right by me. But hey, 
if I am in the wrong here, Jonathan, if it's my problem and not your dad's problem, then do me a favor and just kill me now. Just do it yourself and don't let this, this madman do it. Do it yourself out of love for me. Well, obviously he does not slay him, which means Jonathan admits there that David is in the right. Jonathan agrees to the test, even though perhaps he's still not fully convinced of his father's malintentions. And he's quite confident, I think, that his father would pass it as we read the text. Jonathan vows, however, either way to tell David that he will protect his interests. And in verses 14 and 15, Jonathan asks something of David in return. Says this, Thou shalt not only while yet I live show me the kindness of the Lord, that I die not, but also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, every one from the face of the earth. You know what's interesting about this? When Jonathan finally admits that his father is in the wrong here, and he recognizes that his father might actually be trying to kill David, this is what he knows. He knows that David is special to the Lord. And he says, if my father has actually pitted himself against David, then my father has pitted himself against the Lord. And he sees immediately that this is not going to turn out well for Saul. And so he asks Saul to swear a covenant to him. He says, I've sworn to you. I've given you my armor. That the, I have sworn a covenant to you. Now, would you do the same for me? Would you swear that not only will you spare my life? Now, when, in what circumstance would David be sparing Jonathan's life? If David became the king. Jonathan is foreseeing what's happening here. The, the, the transition is happening. David will be king. Oh, and by the way, when it happens, David, swear to me that you will spare my life, that you won't kill me out of association with my father and spare my family, that you won't kill my children forever. This would be very common, right? When kings would come and when kings would go in that time of history and all throughout history, when a man took over as king, he would kill anybody who posed a threat to him. So if he took over from another kingly line, he would kill everyone in that kingly line so that there was no threat to his throne. Jonathan says, promise me this, that when you become king, you won't kill me and you won't kill those in my family. And so David swears this to him, that he will not destroy Jonathan and his family when he's cutting off, when the Lord cuts off his enemies from the earth. Jonathan is showing complete support for David here. He's completely aligning himself with the will of God. He sees what God is doing and he is going to align himself with it. So they enter into this covenant. In verses 18 through 22, the plan is finalized. David will be absent. Jonathan will discern Saul's response. And on the third day, Jonathan will go out to the field where David is hiding in the thicket and he's going to shoot three arrows and he's going to have his lad, his little lackey, go and get those arrows. And Jonathan says, here's the deal. If I tell the lad, no, 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 the arrows are over here, and where he points is in front of David, then David will know that Saul has no ill intentions. But if he tells the lad, nope, nope, they're o the arrows are over there, and he points beyond where David is hiding, then David will know that Saul wants to kill him. And that's the plan that they have put in place. And this is exactly what happens as the plan is enacted in verses, uh, as we continue in verses uh, 9 through 34. Verse 27 here, scriptures tell us, it came to pass on the morrow, which was the second day of the month, that David's place was empty 
And Saul said unto Jonathan his son, Wherefore cometh not the son of Jesse to meet, neither yesterday nor today? The first day, Saul didn't say anything. He figured that maybe David was unclean. and He didn't want to come before Saul because he was ceremonially unclean. But the second day, Saul says, This is weird. And he says to Jonathan, Where's David? He's missed the second day of the feast. And Jonathan explains exactly what happened. That, well their plan at least. It's not really what happened. But uh, Jonathan explains what he was supposed to explain. That David was gone to go to a feast with his family in Bethlehem and he asks for the king's pardon. The king's response is found in verses 30 and 31. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan and he said unto him, Thou son of the perverse, rebellious woman, do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own confusion and unto the confusion of thy mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse liveth upon the ground, thou shalt not be established, nor thy kingdom. Wherefore now send and fetch him unto me, for he shall surely die. Saul gets angry. But not so much at David as he gets angry at Jonathan here. He questions Jonathan's loyalty. And he he gets angry that Jonathan's loyalty is to David above even his own father. It's an interesting phrase here when he calls him the son of a perverse rebellious woman. This was not intended in Hebrew culture to reflect negatively upon Saul's wife, although you'd think it kind of would. But the idea here was this. If what he's doing is he's giving a heightened form of calling him a rebellious, perverse man. If his mother was a rebellious, perverse woman, then he would be even more so and so it's, it's a heightening curse, as it were, upon him, not technically intended to reflect negatively upon Saul's wife, um, more or less to simply reflect deeply negatively on Jonathan here, calling him rebellious, calling him perverse, saying that he has completely wrong priorities here. And notice, notice how what we see here about Saul's perspective. Not only does Jonathan recognize that David is going to be king, but Saul recognizes it too. He says, look, Jonathan, you're confused. Don't you know that as long as David is alive, you can't become king and your kingdom can't be established? But see, here's the thing. Jonathan didn't care because Jonathan knew that Saul and his line had been rejected and that David has been chosen. And Jonathan isn't interested in a kingdom. He's interested in God's will. Saul can't understand that. Saul can't understand how Jonathan would set aside earthly ambition in order to follow the will of the Lord. Saul can't understand how Jonathan would reject even the, the, the possibility of his own kingdom in order to submit himself to God's desire for David to have the kingdom. Saul can't understand it. And Jonathan gets very upset. He challenges Saul in verse 32. He says, what has David done? And Saul's reply? He picks up a spear and tries to kill his son. Michael probably had something to worry about when she lied and told dad that that David tried to threaten her with death. Because now Jonathan says, look, what has David done? And Saul says, that's enough of this. And he picks up a spear and tries to kill Jonathan. So Jonathan leaves and the scriptures tell us that he leaves in shame and in anger. He's ashamed at his father's behavior. He's ashamed that his father would so greatly hate David that he would reject the will of the Lord, that he would reject everything that God has established. 
And it remains only now to tell David the bad news. Everything transpires on the third day as they had planned. Jonathan tells his lad to go beyond David to find the arrows. And verses 41 and 42 tell us this. And as soon as the lad was gone, David arose out of his place toward the south and fell on his face to the ground and bowed himself three times. A show of abject humility, a show of, of sorrow. Three being the, the heightened form of anything in Hebrew. And they kissed one another and wept with one another until David exceeded. And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for as much as we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord be between me and thee, and between my seed and thy seed forever. And he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Both men are deeply grieved. Jonathan says, David, it's time for you to run. My father wants to kill you. You're not safe anymore in Israel. It's time to leave. They weep. Jonathan reiterates the fact that there's a covenant between them, between their seed forever. And then scriptures tell us David departs and Jonathan goes back to the city. David is now in exile, fleeing for his life from a king over a kingdom that has been promised unto him and from a king that has no right to the throne but all the power to destroy him. There are several lessons we could be gleaned. I'd love to sit and park on Jonathan and Jonathan's incredible faith in that even though he could have the kingdom if David died, he is rejecting the kingdom because he wants what God wants. And what God wants is David on the throne. There's faith there. There's tremendous character there. But as we close today, I'd like us to meditate for a few minutes on the nature of the will of God how to approach finding it and how to align ourselves with it. Just one main thought. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 tell us this. God speaking, He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I speak of this verse from time to time, but it is a very important doctrinal concept when we approach circumstances like the one David is going through. David is in a very unique spot right now. He's the rightful king of Israel, and yet another is on the throne. His life seemingly hangs on a thread as he contends with the ravings of a man going mad. Do you think David would have imagined those years earlier when Samuel anointed him with oil and he went back out to the field and he's thinking, he's trying to, he's trying to process everything that happened. I got called out of the field. Samuel the prophet was there. Samuel pours oil over my head and says, you are going to be the next king in Israel. What just happened here? As he's trying to process it, and perhaps he began thinking about, okay, how is this going to happen? How am I going to become king? It would make sense to me that he would think about something like a Goliath moment, right? Where I'm going to present myself to Israel, I am going to stand for the Lord, and the Lord is going to use me in a great way, and I'm going to do great things for God, and it's going to be the beginning of a, of a, of a reign over Israel where I will be able to glorify the Lord and be used as a tool of Him. That, 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 that Goliath moment, I think David may have thought about that. 
And then maybe after that, he becomes Saul's armor bearer. The king loves him. The people begin to love him. He becomes captain over thousands. He finds favor with people. He finds victory before the Lord. The Philistines flee before him. I think that part probably made sense to him as well. But then things started changing. The king starts trying to spear him to the wall. The king is promising things and then negating them, trying to work up in him anger. The king surrounds his house ready to kill him. The king tries to pin him to the wall again. And the king chases him and even in the face of Samuel the prophet tries to take him unjustly and destroy him. As you think about your life, what you know and what you don't know, the elements of God's will which you see and understand, the elements of God's will which you simply cannot, we need to understand that the path between where we are and where God wants us is not always a straight path. Sometimes God just gets us there. He puts us on the straight path. He calls us to be king and we become king metaphorically. But other times, like David's circumstances that he's about to step into, he calls a man to be king and then he leads him into exile. And we need to know that God is not making his first mistake in those days. That God isn't turning to a plan B. That God is doing something unbeknownst to us though it may be, for his best glory and for our best good. I don't know what was going through David's mind as he gave Jonathan that final hug and ran, recognizing that he's about to enter into exile in a kingdom that he's rightfully the king. But to be certain, he didn't know what God was doing. And yet God was going to do something through David and through this time. We're going to find out as we go through the next several weeks that many of the psalms that we cherish were written while David was fleeing from Saul in the wilderness. We're going to read those psalms. We're going to look through those psalms together as we get to those passages of Scripture. We're going to find that David learned some fantastic things about God, about his character, about who God is and what he expects through this time in the wilderness that this time is going to be a training ground for David to make him everything that God needs him to be to lead the nation of Israel. You know, God's way is not your way. You say, okay, God, I know that you want, fill in the blank, I know you want my family to be provi provided for, right? Whatever that blank may be, and then you assume upon how it must be that God will bring that about, right? God, I know that you want me to be king, therefore... I'm going to assume it's going to happen this way. God, I know that you want my family to be provided for, therefore I know that you're going to give me a good job. I know that you're going to do this for me. I know that you're going to do that for me. Well, that's your way, but is that God's way? Okay, God, you've placed in my heart a love for children, and because I've got this love for children and a desire to have children, that must mean you're going to give me children. Well, that's God's way. I mean, that's your way, but is that God's way? God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Okay, God, you say that you will withhold no good thing from those that walk uprightly. That must mean that I perceive these good things, and as I perceive these things to be good, that you must give them to me. Well, that's your thoughts. 
But is that God's thought? I might be wrong, but I think it highly unlikely that David envisioned the circumstances within which he found himself at the end of 1 Samuel 20. But sometimes the best path, sometimes the path that God has for us isn't the straight path. Sometimes it is indeed the tortured path. And the lessons we learn and the circumstances they shape us and mold us, the successes and the failures, they all work together to form us into the men and the women whom God can use to accomplish His purposes and His will. Now sometimes, and don't, don't get me wrong here, sometimes we end up on the tortured path because we reject the will of God. That's Saul. Saul was on the, path, the tortured path because he had denied God and rejected God. I'm not speaking about that today. We've talked about that already. We've already talked about what happens if you don't conform yourself to the will of God. That was when we preached on Saul. Today we're preaching on David, the man who, in the midst of all of these trials and tribulations, maintained a laser-like focus upon the reality that God is just, that God will vindicate him, that God is in control. He never wavered. He never reduced his integrity because Saul reduced his integrity. He never gave up the distinctives of what it means to follow the Lord because he was fighting a battle with a man who didn't care. He maintained his loyalty to God and to his word as did Jonathan in the midst of all of this. And I'm speaking to those of you today who are confident that you have maintained your love and your loyalty to the word of God and to the will of God and yet you find yourself in a place that you did not expect. So many times God helps us gain perspective by taking us down a path that we wouldn't otherwise have ever gone down on our own. He grows us. He nurtures us. He builds us. He turns us into what He needs us to be to do what He needs us to do. And as we consider David this morning, we've seen the beginning of that. When he left Jonathan's side, he wept. It was not what he would have chosen. But when we see what will come about because of it, we recognize, as we should always recognize, that God is indeed in control. And so may God help us today. May He help us to gain perspective from the beginning of David's exile. God doesn't always give us the privilege of knowing everything, of knowing what He's going to do and how He's going to do it. But we can rest in the reality that He has always given us enough Knowledge to make the decision that is right in his eyes. If only we will trust it, even when we don't fully expect it, and even when we don't fully understand it. Let's close in prayer.